Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us here. Today, we're going to be discussing the origins of the family, private property, and the state. We have two different copies, so uh, I guess we'll try not to refer to pages because they're different paginations and translations. But um, this is a very important text. It's written in 1884 by, by Frederick Engels, and it's him working through a text that's written a few years earlier in 1877 by Henry Louis Morgan, who was an American anthropologist, and that text from, eight, from 77 is Ancient Societies. Um, he's also working through some of the manuscripts that Marx left. Uh, he left a few on, on anthropological texts, but uh, specifically he's working through the ones that Marx left on ancient societies as well. Um, if beyond this text you want to look at some of the stuff that Marx left, I, I heavily uh, recommend Lawrence Crater's um, ethnolog Ethnological Notebooks of Karl Marx, um, which is basically just the notebooks that he has with all of the anthropological readings he was doing in the late 70s and early, actually, I think it was the 1880s to 1882 uh, years. So, um, Eddie, you just finished reading the text. I, I read it last year, so you might be a, a little more fresh uh, to start, but uh, the name has, uh, there, there's a reason behind the name, right? It's a long name, but uh, the, the sequential order of the family, private property, and the state um, is, uh, is, is how the development of, of the book takes place. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you wanna take it away from there, Eddie. Yeah, um, essentially the book is Engels using um, the method Marx developed historical materialism to try and find how private property, the family and the state developed by going as far back as um, was available to him at the time, like Carlos was saying, using these various, various texts um, by Marx, by anthropologists, uh, well, Morgan is the main one, and there's other ones he uses, and there's ones that um, he critiques as well um, throughout the book. So he starts back essentially with what he calls primitive society, um, and, and these people who lived communally before private property was ever developed, um, and the way they use labor and um, and the way that they conceptualize land is the group lives on this land and they have the land that's for hunting, the land that's for fishing, the land where they live, and they live communally on the land. And the people go out and labor, they have their jobs, you know, some people hunt, some people fish, um, and, and some people stay back, do the cooking and cleaning, and then the gifts of labor are shared by the group. Um, and these societies develop, and Engels um, lays out exactly what the rules were in the society, how they looked at violence, um, how they looked at revenge, um, how they looked at um, how they looked at property and ownership. Um, and what he finds is that only once agriculture develops and humans start to have these accumulations of commodities do they develop this concept of ownership. Uh, they have people who start accumulating goods generally the people with the weapons, and they say, now we own these goods. Um, and here, for the first time, you start to see humans develop this concept of ownership, and they start to put um, this obsession with the commodity ahead of protection of the group and um, the same kind of values that the communal societies had. Um, so eventually this develops into the ownership of land, right? They, they develop or they have this concept of ownership now and people with the weapons again start saying we own this land and the weapons are very important. The people who own the weapons become the state 
Um, the state emerges once you have this society that's cleaved into classes. You have the class of people who own the land and the class of people who work on the land and the state protects the rights or the property rights of the people who own the land. Um, and this develops through various stages. Um, you have feudal society and Ingalls traces multiple uh, different societies through their historical development. Um, but basically you have communal society eventually turns into slave society um, where people own slaves, the slaves do the labor um, and the state enforces that. And then you have feudal society um, where you have like lords and then the serfs or manufacturers work on the land and the Lord's armies are the state. And then you have capitalism where capitalists own the land and wage laborers work on the land um, and the state enforces that. And also you have times like in the United States in the 1800s where you have slave society existing uh, right beside capitalism. And we talked with Dr. Asatar Bayer, you could even say our current system has pushed slavery into the prison, uh, prison industrial complex, the prison labor system existing side by side with capitalism. Um, but it, the whole book really helps you kind of get a picture of human development as Marx and Engels saw it. Um, and it helps you also conceptualize what socialism actually means and what socialism could be. Um, and helps you really understand how these ideas of selfishness and individualism and ownership really only existed at the advent of private property. Um, and then the other stuff he talks about is the family um, and the family develops various ways as well. Um, Maybe I don't need to go into all of that right now, but uh, do you have anything to say? Yeah, that's, um, I, I think the point on the family is actually a, a quite important one um, for, for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, traditionally, um, if we look at even in the manifesto, one of the questions that Marx, has, Marx and Engels have to deal with is the question of the family, because there is this sort of uh, conception that that communism is, is coming to destroy the family or something like that. And the first thing that, that Marx addresses is, well, what family are we talking about? The, the bourgeois, bourgeois society already destroyed the family and it made it into an economic unit. And what we see in these anthropological texts is how essential that process of redefining what the family is, uh, how essential that process is for, for the development of economic relationships, because if you have a communal society um, where families are on the basis of, of pairing, uh, pairing families, right, uh, which is what he describes as, as what's the case under barbarism, he gives three essential stages um, that are more so the ones that uh, Morgan is working through. So barbarism, savagery, and civilization. And then, of course, in civilization, that's already class society. And that has, you know, it's different, uh, it's different steps. But uh, when you have a family that's just one big collective, uh, how is property handed down? Well, it's handed down collectively, right? Um, so you need the family uh, as a monogamous unit so that it becomes an economic unit and then you can transfer property um, privately, right? So the family played an essential role and, and that's why it's the first thing in the title. Uh, the origins of the family, uh, private property in the state, because the family was what determined the ability for private property to be passed down. Remember that when we speak of determining, right, in the Marxist tradition, we're not talking about like Aristotelian linear causation, right? Um, we're, we're talking about what presupposes this. And what presupposes 
um, uh, the ability to withhold on, on to wealth privately is a family that works as, as an economic unit um, that allows for the, um, the transfer of pri private property from generation to generation to generation. And th from, from this, the, the second important point uh, comes about, which is the, the relationship of power that existed between the sexes from there being uh, an equal relationship of power in, in these other pre-civilization societies, um, or sometimes even uh, more power on the uh, matriarchal side, um, to their being uh, uh, with the monogamous family, what he calls the first class distinction. And that's the distinction uh, between men and women. So I think this is huge for, for people that love talking about how Marxism is class reductionist. Uh, first, it shows that when they say that they don't have a clear understanding of what class means in the Marxist tradition. Uh, and, and I think this text is a really good text that demystifies some of those uh, concepts that are used wrongly and, and on an everyday basis. But, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, when, when you think back to what it must have been like for women to live hundreds of years ago, you think of, um, well, how much progression we've made. And especially in ancient times, you'd think men were just pillaging and doing whatever they wanted with no laws. But actually, if you go back to Germanic society and these communal societies, things were run by maternal law. Since they had group marriage and they didn't have the concept of the family, um, and you know, men and women would kind of sleep with random people, you, they would trace who the kids were by their mother um, because that, the mother was the one who had the kids. So things um, uh, were determined by maternal law. And then once you have the development of private property and the family develops as this economic unit, um, you have paternal law developed so the father can pass down um, all their wealth to their son, as Carlos was saying. And then you have the woman subjugated to doing all the domestic work, you know, in the communal society, women more did the uh, like um, cooking and stuff and where men would do the hunting. Then um, we're not saying that's what we want to return to in the future. So there was like some kind of division there, but it wasn't what it became where women um, where capitalism or any pri uh, any economic system based on private property is 100% reliant on women being in the house giving their labor for free while the man goes off and makes money for a capitalist or the Lord or whoever else. Um, and, and this is how you see all, um, uh, um, this is what the book, what's it called? Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism is basically about in, in modern day saying that um, the, the system of wage labor is reliant on women being in the household doing these jobs. And this is the same thing Ingalls is talking about saying um, the subjugation of women to the household and domestic work is something that develops with private property and paternal law and the patriarchy is something that develops with private property as well. Yeah, uh, I, I just wanna say the quote real quick just cause it's short and nice. Um, the first class opposition that appears in history coincides with the development of the antagonism between man and woman in the monogamous marriage. And the first class oppression coincides with that of the female sex by the male. Uh, uh, so yeah, it, we have a change in the conception of, of the family, a change in the conception of what property is. I mean, uh, even, even into what using the, the three stages that Morgan proposes, even into well into civilization, the concept of property, even in the middle ages, 
had nothing to do with the concept of property that we use now in capitalism. In capitalism, we use a concept of property that originates from uh, from Roman law. Roman law, it's jus utendi et abutendi, the right to use and to abuse, right? Uh, so if you consider the woman in the family uh, property, then the husband has the right to use and, and to abuse. Anything that is your property, you can do whatever the hell you want with it. Um, but property, even up to the Middle Ages, right, uh, had a, a different conception. It had uh, the right to procure and to distribute. So it was basically property in terms of stewardship. You were responsible for maintaining the land, maintaining that the people within that land had the necessary things to flourish. And I mean, although there's debate here and there about how romanticized those pre-capitalist formations uh, and concepts of property might have been, and uh, and and how much they actually fulfilled what they claimed to have fulfilled uh, as their responsibilities. Uh, it's important to see how we we how the development of the productive forces forces us to develop the concepts in, in, into different ways. So we're thinking of the family in different ways. We're thinking of property in different ways, um, and that's why. Um, it, it, one of the important things that that Marx does that the Marxist project is contextualize these terms uh, and say that no, uh, property doesn't exist universally like this. Uh, this is, we're talking about, about a specific form of property. He does that with the family in the manifesto. We're, we're talking about, about a specific form of family that's used as an economic unit, right? Uh, so um, this anthropological work is really good because each epoch presents its ideas as universal. It presents its ideas as what has been always. Um, and, and anthropology and economic anthropology has really been able to basically destroy uh, these universalizing assumptions of liberalism, right? So we see someone like Karl Polanyi, uh, who's not a Marxist, who's not a radical by any means, uh, who in the Great Transformation literally says that almost all of the theses of economic liberalism have been proven terribly false. They, they're false, you know, all of these assumptions that are behind bourgeois mentality are false. Um, and, and this book is, is one of the ones that helps with that. Ancient societies helped demystify uh, uh, the myth that the state has always existed, uh, that it has always existed in the way that it exists now. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and that's the beauty of Marx's method, right? Of historical materialism is we don't exist in a vacuum is everything had its beginning and um i mean marx and engels were basically obsessed with reading engels with science and marx with economics math and history so they were able to see a lot of these things in their totality um and that's how they developed the the method originally and you can see when it's applied to like anthropology it's super super useful for as you said contextualizing these things um, that we see like the state and family how um how did these things develop and it's really i don't know it's just an awesome read it's this is one of the most popular books because it's actually really uh entertaining like i was telling my roommate about it who's not even that into politics um but uh this if you're gonna read the book maybe read the first three chapters and the last chapter if you're not that big of a reader the middle ones he's basically proving his main thesis um, by looking at various societies and how specifically they developed um which is still interesting to read but the last chapter is amazing um and he really starts to lay out you know marx and engels don't talk a ton about what socialism is um, they, they 
see it as something that will develop. Um, but you can kind of get a picture of what socialism could be like from what Engels writes about here. So this is in page 127 of my part um, of my book. He says, barefaced covetousness was the moving spirit of civilization from its first dawn to the present day. Wealth, and again wealth, and for the third time wealth. Wealth, not of society, but of the puny individual, was its only and final aim. If nevertheless, the advanced development of science and at repeated times, the highest flower of art fell into its lap. This was only due to the fact that without them, the highest emoluments of modern wealth would have been missing. So Engels is basically saying here, capitalism has utilized human labor or uh, all um, economic systems with private property have used human labor, but they've used human labor for individual ends, especially capitalism. So these advancements in science that we have, these or these um, incredible works of art we have happened by accident. Whereas if we were to organize um, human labor um, for all of society or for the benefit of the masses, we could go so much further. And the example that I was giving people a lot when I was kind of giving a condensed version of this book on TikTok was look at SpaceX and what they're turning out versus NASA. You know, NASA is based on exploration. Let's go to the moon. And they're constantly getting cut and having to give their contracts away to SpaceX, who owns the state. And then you have SpaceX making Minecraft cars and, and doing tourism in space, you know, everything that's going to help their bottom line, help their profit, rather than developing true scientific advancements that would help society. Um, and NASA is just like an example of what we could do if we utilize public or human labor for public good. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know that that's an, a crazy way to think about socialism. And it's why people like Albert Einstein said socialism is common sense. I'm not an economist, but even I can see that. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I just wanted to maybe go back to, um, just because it was one of the things that I was anticipating in, in the text. So socialism, uh, scientific socialism, even from its very like early, um, theorization in Marx and Engels is sort of seen as a return to uh, the condition of the pre-civilization classless societies, but with uh, developing out of the kingdom of necessity into the, the kingdom of freedom, right? So we get all of the cool stuff that uh, capitalism gives us, but uh, eventually capitalism becomes a better and, um, and the contradictions force it to, uh, to abolish itself and all of that great stuff that we know and that we can talk about maybe in another video. But um, they, there's this feeling that socialism is sort of a return, right? And even philosophically, early on, Marx talks about uh, communism as a return to our species being, right? To the sort of existence that we have uh, before. So one of the things going into it, the first time I read this text was after reading how the family worked early on before civilization, I was waiting for, for Engels to just go full degenerate and, and be like, you know, just polygamy everywhere, group sex all over the place. <laughs> that wasn't the case. The way the negation of the negation ended up appearing uh, was, uh, was basically as an extension of monogamy onto, onto man. So uh, creating the conditions for real free love, which he says that couldn't really exist beforehand. The conditions weren't there with the, all the group activity being there. Um, the conditions begin to start being there monogamy 
but it's it's uneven. It's really monogamy just for women. It's not really monogamy for men. Uh, and that socialism is the condition for the possibility of real free love, uh, free, real free monogamous love uh, without having to worry about economic uh, concerns and all other sorts of things that in the world that we live in today, how many divorces happen because of the stresses of just economic life? Uh, so um, in, in terms of love and relationships, socialism, even there sort of emancipates the, the family and creates a possibility for real free love. Mm. Yeah, how many divorces happen? And then how many people are trapped with an abusive partner because they don't have the economic means to leave? Um, and this is what we're talking about. Like, when we say free love, it might not be in the hippie sense, you know, we're not going to go to the masses and say, don't you want to like leave your wife and like bang everyone in the community? <laughs> Socialism is. But it gives people the economic freedom to make real choices. And it gives women the economic freedom to flourish, you know, they're uh, rather than being trapped under um, the weight of this domestic labor that we expect them to give for free um yeah there's also like a, a very uh, rousseauian-esque spirit running through the book where it's like civilization comes around yeah on one end stuff gets better because wealth begins to develop and and comfort just begins to exploit uh, explode right but uh on the other hand as wealth is is being generated Poverty is too. So uh, civilization creates the conditions for pauperism and, and for necessity. And one of the interesting things when we look at uh, modern anthrop economic anthropology, uh, people like uh, Salins and, and, and Maus, uh, uh, is, is that these theses are confirmed that uh, we think that capitalism and capitalist theorists like to make us think that before capitalism, everything was so bad. And then capitalism came in and and made everything so good, and um, and that's that's not the case. People had so much leisure time; they had more than enough uh, before capitalism because they didn't have this sort of hunger for more and more and more. Right? Uh, wealth was considered as a means to an end. Right? It was an, an instrument in order to do other things. Um, so when wealth becomes the end, right, in, in capitalism, that creates the conditions for for pauperism and. It's only in capitalism where people are forced to work 12 hours a day in treacherous conditions. Like even, and for God's, no one's arguing for feudalism, but in feudalism, peasants worked three to four hours uh, a day, right? So um, it really is uniquely exploitative that uh, the development of capitalism. Yeah, people we were talking about like this unilateral view of history and people kind of think the thesis of Marx and we were criticizing Stalin a bit because this is how he kind of lays it out in dialectical and historical materialism. Like you have communal society, which they lived cool, but they didn't have anything. So it was terrible. And then you have slavery, which was really bad. Feudalism, which was a little better. Capitalism, which gave us all this stuff. And then we'll have socialism, which is great, but it's like, no, the communal society had all these great things, but they didn't have the comforts <clears throat> that come with, you know, um, human labor power that come later. Um, but then you have, you know, as you said, there are unique evils to capitalism that don't exist in the other systems. Um, so it's not this like simplified, uh, what does Riggins call it? Like robotic dialectic or I, he has some name for it. Just like mechanistic. 
Yeah, something that's like that. That's the word that's usually is mechanistic or positivist dialectic, um, where it's just crude. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, again, like we do also have to take into consideration that a lot of the works that we do criticize in this manner, um, and rightly so, are works that weren't like made for academia. <laughs> they weren't like super strictly done. They're made so that workers can get the general ideas uh, of things. And they were helpful uh, in that sense, but in other aspects, they, they perhaps uh, simplified things too much. But um, we, it was the first experiment in socialism and they were trying to balance out between being academically rigorous and using all the right words and, and stuff and, and making it in, in a way in which workers understood it. So um, sometimes the, the first uh, had to be sacrificed for the latter, but the reality is that the, the education of, of the average worker in the Soviet Union or in other socialist nations um, was a lot better than <laughs> than the ones in, in, in capitalist nations, because there is this interest in, in creating the new man uh, that not only works with their hands, but the sort of solving of the contradiction between mental and, and physical labor is, uh, is something that I see present in, in the socialist experiments that have happened. And uh, it's definitely present theoretically in, in Marxism. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people in modern day who the first person they read was Stalin. They're like, oh, this makes sense because it's simplified and then you can deepen your knowledge. But um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with simplifying things to reach the workers. Um, and we have like critiques of the critiques of it now. Um, but yeah, like like we said, he was writing for the workers at the time. So. I got to head out here soon, Carlos. Do you have anything else you wanted to add about this book before we call her a day? Um, this is a book that there could be so much said about it. Uh, there's so many interesting points. Like my copy is, it's got so much notes all over the place and it's kind of hard to pick through what I want to talk about. But um, I think it'd be cool to end with one, like the most badass quote, uh, or at least the, the one that I like the best from the book. Um, and it's uh, it's the one on the state that I had mentioned to you before we got on, Eddie. So, uh, uh, so it, this is Engels uh, saying, the state therefore has not existed from all eternity. There have been societies which have managed without it, which had no notion of the state or state power. At a definite stage of economic development, which necessarily involved the cleavage of society into classes, the state became a necessary, a necessity because of this cleavage. We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes has not only ceased to be a necessity, but becomes a positive hindrance to production. A fetter is, is another concept that, that Marx used. Uh, they will fall as inevitably as they once arose. The state inevitably falls with them. The society which organizes production anew on the basis of free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machinery where it will then belong into the museum of antiquities next to the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. That's, I don't know, that's a badass quote. It's like, we're gonna put the state <laughs> in the museum next to all these uh, antiquated uh, instruments that maybe were useful at one point, but now are superfluous yeah that's one of the quotes in state and rev um yeah 
And one of the main reasons Lennon digs that quote out is because people misinterpret Engels so much. And Lennon's writing that book for the, the Russian Revolution, 1917. It's like the Social Democrats are misinterpreting Marx and Engels, and then the anarchists are. And you fast forward to today, and it's the same thing. People are claiming to have read what they wrote. And look, I'm not the biggest like read theory guy, but if you're going to claim that you've read this stuff and then you misinterpret Marx and Engels without actually reading them, without knowing what they wrote, it's frustrating. Um, and that's what, you know, I think Vosh had a good conversation with Hakeem and they got over it, but he was claiming to have read this stuff and then, you know, heavily misinterpreting Marx and Engels. Um, so, but they had very clear views on the state um, and, and they're laid out well, really, really well in this book. Um, and if you've read State and Revolution, it draws heavily from this book, but you should read the book so you can uh, develop the ideas more fully. Um, we talked about them a little bit in here, but you'll of course only get the full ideas if you if you read what they actually have to say, which is, you know, part of the, you know, what we encourage at Midwestern Marks, like make yourself read, it's good for you. <laughs> so for sure. Yeah, what I, I mean, one of the things you mentioned which there's the, the Vosh and Hakeem thing, man, I wish it was limited to, to even just YouTubers who, who talk about things like if they read it and then, <laughs> And they really haven't, but it, sadly, it's not. It's a lot of what happens in academia. 99% of the things that are written about Marx are written by people who maybe read the manifesto. Um, so it's important to educate yourself and, you know, not to be cliche. Education is power. And, and when someone tries to pass by you some some BS, you can, you can pull out in, in a very Maoist sort of way, pull out the red book, but not the red book, whatever other book <laughs> you've been able to read. Um, <laughs> if you want to pull out the red book, carry it in your lunchbox. It's yeah, I, was, I was at a seminar yesterday with uh, with a friend of mine who's a who's a trade worker, and he's actually getting a, a he's getting his PhD in philosophy. So uh, there was this one uh, senator, Republican senator, who was like, "We need less philosophers and more." Uh, plumbers or, or, or tradesmen and he was like well I'm, I'm doing both but uh, I was criticizing this one really small book that we have to read from and it has like really small letters and he was like you know I used to like those because I, I would put them on my work pocket and just read at work and I was like well that's that's the proper Maoist purpose that's why the little red book was made so small in the middle of an argument you just pull it out and you're like ah that's the, the Wikipedia <laughs> yeah that's hilarious um yeah, everyone's got to read this book, too, because I recommended Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine when I was reading the parts about Latin America. And then she gets to the parts about Eastern Europe and the, and the uh, Soviet bloc. And her anti-communism makes me so mad. And I read that after I had recommended this book to everyone. I'm like, no, I just recommended it to all these people who don't understand Marxism. And Naomi Klein saying, she says, Marxists are like religious people who are waiting for the rapture and the rapture is the revolution. I'm like, one, the rapture's never happened and there's been a bunch of socialist revolutions. And two, no, that's not Marx's method at all. That's the opposite of Marx's method is <clears throat> don't be dogmatic and interpret things as they come and how they develop. Um, so yeah, knowledge is power. And then you can debunk these silly social Democrats in academia. Um, there's, a, there's a good quote from Sartre. I think it's in uh, the truth of the method or, or where, where he's like, you know, every argument that bourgeois society proposes is 
there's already an argument that Marx defeated in like a different <laughs> sort of formulation. So, <laughs> and it's so true, man. I, I'm engaging with stuff every day that that Marx already destroyed 100 <laughs> years, 150 years ago, and uh, and the stuff that does make sense is shit that he said already. That they just changed the word, and it's so infuriating. But you gotta roll with it. You, you got to get a degree, I guess. But Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, the better you actually understand the text, like Vijay Prashad says, once you read Capital once a year for like 10 years, all of a sudden you have 100% confidence because he's like, it's a shield. And the bourgeois arguments, they can throw anything at you and you can just bat it down because you <laughs> understand how the flow of Capital works. Um, I don't know if everyone wants to read Capital once a year. Vijay Prashad's kind of on another level compared That's to That's the summer move. Uh, yes, every summer. At least every summer do, do capital. Um, all right, folks, thank you for joining us. I know Eddie has to go, um, but uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to add before we, we close it out? No, just uh, stay tuned. We got the print journal coming soon. Um, check out our Patreon that helps fund our uh, printing and publishing projects. We have a uh, print journal is basically done now. We just got to get the printing done. And, um, and then we're going to be working on a new project after that, which we'll be revealing soon. Um, but we're very, very excited about it. So excited about the future um, and the community we're building. And we're very grateful for all the people who are learning alongside us. And we got to, we got to 200 today. My, my man got to 200. So 200K on TikTok. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> Last month we hit 100 on the website. So uh, we're very grateful for, for all of you who are supporting this project and who continue to do so. And um, hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs> you got to say it, Eddie. Hasta la victoria. Uh, hasta la what? <laughs> <laughs> hasta la victoria siempre. Victoria? Victoria. Hasta la victoria siempre. Hasta la victoria siempre. There you go. See you, folks. <laughs>